Welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am not the normal co-host who does the introduction. Our brother Dan is actually going to be on the West Coast for two weeks, and uh, while he's gone, I have rule of the roost. So uh, I've invited uh, a couple friends on. Um, Travis Rogers has been on the podcast before, um, and he's a, he's a good brother from our church, so we wanted to have him on again. And uh, today we're actually going to have someone uh, new on the podcast who we've uh, met in some online interactions recently, and that's a uh, uh, Derek Morell. Derek, would you like to say anything uh, about yourself? Yeah, guys. Well, first off, I love being on the uh, on your show here. I definitely appreciate it. I love talking about this stuff, and it's kind of a, a passion of mine. Um, I've been in these theology groups online for a while. I've, I actually started a uh, a group online called Irresistible Truth Discussion, and we started it about a month ago. So we just hit our first month anniversary, and. I have a, a page called Irresistible Truth, and you can find me on uh, YouTube and Facebook. And I've also done some debates. I've debated two times so far, just started doing this, on libertarian free will versus my position, which is compatibilism. And I have one more debate, at least on schedule, on limited atonement in December. So looking forward to that. Well, we'll, we'll be sure to check that out. Um, and that sort of swings us into our discussion today. We're going to be basically talking about libertarian free will. Um, so, well, do you guys have anything you wanted to say about libertarian free will before we begin? Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's quite a hot button these days, especially amongst uh, between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. And um, you know, I can uh, I can go through some definitions if you want, or if you want me to do that a little bit yeah, later. Sure. When we go, okay. Yeah. Why not? So I've, I've noticed a lot of these definitions, they've kind of morphed um, many times over the years, but I do have a definition from one of the popular, um, one of the popular groups here. I just want to quote this specifically. So on his blog, this is a uh, soteriology 101 guys on his blog. I believe it's flower says libertarian free will. And I'm quoting this or contra causal freedom is the categorical ability of the will to refrain or not refrain from a given moral action. So in relation to soteriology, libertarian free will is mankind's ability to accept or reject God's appeal to be reconciled through faith in Christ, end quote. And before we kind of get into that, I mean, I define freedom. It's, it's not that we don't, it's not that as a compatibilist, I'll speak for myself here. I don't deny we have freedom and that we make choices and that we make real choices. So a lot of people think it's like, oh, you guys are just fatalists. And that's not even the truth at all. What I believe freedom is, is that we freely choose what we want in the moment. And to mirror Mr. Flowers here, I'd say in relation to soteriology, we freely choose what we want in the moment without constraint. However, our wants are actually corrupted. And I think that's the whole point. So just as Calvin and pretty much every major you know theologian especially reform tradition it's not we don't have it well we do have an issue with the word free will and it's because it gets butchered and it's not free it's it's literally in bondage so if if you say we're we have a free will in as much as okay we could choose stuff i could choose um vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream okay cool i believe that but that's not really what people mean when they say free will they add this whole philosophical undertone to it so 
It's it's almost that they're trying to say that people have the ability to arbitrarily choose or choose apart from their nature. There's literally nothing about them that determines the choice. They're just going to choose one or the other. And when you get into that, your choices are sort of arbitrary or or random because if there's no reason, no true reason why you would be uh, choosing one or the other, then why are you making choices at that point? And I think... Going back to the nature thing, a lot of people kind of conflate two issues. There's, well, let's go into the, the decision you made, vanilla, chocolate, whatever, your ice cream flavors. There's nothing in our nature that is saying it has to be one over the other in that kind of sense. Yeah, we're free. We can choose vanilla. We can choose chocolate. I cannot choose to jump out that window right there, sprout wings and fly because that's against my physical nature, my biological nature. I can't fly. I will fall and quickly find out what my nature is limiting me to. When it comes to the spiritual sense, that's nobody's going to argue physical nature, biological nature is limited. Where people have a hard time is in the spiritual sense. How dare you say I'm not spiritually free to do whatever? But by arguing that, it's really how dare God say I'm not spiritually free because scripture is plain on that. Yeah. And even with what's interesting is, you know, a lot of these guys, they'll they'll come back and like, well, you know, we're not autonomous, which, you know, back in the day, especially when they used to debate this, like Jonathan Edwards, I mean, the, the Armenian position was all autonomous and and everything. Well, now it's a little bit more, not really, but kind of sort of, and then it's, you know, you get into the nitty gritty, but um, they'll say, oh, well, we still have influences, but really I'm the first mover in my decision. I make the first choice. This is them saying this, not me. I'm, I make the first choice in my decision. I might like chocolate because I prefer it over vanilla. But what they're also saying is that if I was in, so I picked vanilla or I picked chocolate today, but if I was in the same exact scenario again, I would equally be able to choose one or the other. There's no causation. There's, there's, there's no difference at all. And what I'm saying is if you tell me, that you could have chosen vanilla and chocolate. When we're talking like that, we're talking about perception based off our experience. Like, yeah, we've all probably chosen vanilla once and chocolate once. However, if you want to pinpoint that one event in time and say, I had the ability to choose vanilla, well, prove it because you've never chosen two opposite things at the same time. (laughs) I mean, I I understand, like, theoretically, and we're all like, well, of course you could choose, you know, but we're only doing that through perception based off our experience, but go sit in the middle of a bonfire and drink Gatorade and then tell me if you have the ability to do that. And, you know, what, what we find is as people, we have the capacity to do many things, you know, does someone have a capacity to choose Christ? I mean, it, what we see that it appears to us, it doesn't mean ability. And the Bible tells us we can't do things all the time. You know, you can't choose Christ. No one, no one can come unless the father, you know, draws them. I mean, you, Paul talks about it. You cannot, a natural man doesn't do it. First so, Corinthians 2.14, yeah. And, and Romans 8.7 as well. I mean, you know, so what's interesting with libertarian free will, and I think this is why some of the definitions get kind of skewed and it kind of, they add a little bit. Because if I ask them, can you choose Christ apart from God's grace, any christian will be like no of course not we need grace well then what are you free from i mean are we talking free will in a spiritual sense or or picking ice cream colors because there's answers to both and of course i think 
um, as a compatibilist, things are determined, ordained, even the small stuff. God holds up everything by the power of his will. However, that doesn't mean our choices aren't real and that we're making mm -hmm. free choices because all freedom means is that we're choosing without constraint. It doesn't matter what caused it. I mean, if someone held a gun to my mm -hmm. head, I could freely choose to fight him or, or freely choose to obey him. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean now it doesn't mean just because I'm free doesn't mean it's a great experience or a great, you know, whatever, but it doesn't take away. It takes away my freedom in a broad sense, but not in that specific moment at that specific time. I'm still choosing and, and maneuvering. Mm -hmm. The freedom, the freedom to choose still comes from me and my desires and, and my will. Yeah. Now, if God changes my desires by regenerating me, then it's still me making the choice. I just have a new set of desires, but it's still my choice in a sense. It's, it's coming from me and my desires. It's not completely arbitrary. And you touched on, you know, God being over all things. Sean and I were actually discussing the same thing just before, you know, the episode started. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, or 1.11, sorry. Also, we have obtained an, inher an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Doesn't say he works some things. Doesn't say he works all kinds of things. It doesn't say, well, he doesn't really work, or he's purposely willed to not work. He does yes. work all things after the counsel of his will. So he is over all, moving all, sustaining all. And that's something that, that right there should be a presupposition that is the basis of every effort of theological doctrine going forth. And as we all know, all means all. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you have other, I mean, you have many other verses, like I'm looking at one, if, uh, Hebrews 1, 3, um, I won't read the whole verse, but in the verse it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, you know, that's a continually carrying everything along. And there's, you know, I think when this doctrine, you know, when we get into this, we're talking especially about things like God's providence and how does that work? And um, you have the whole debates of uh, syner synergism and monergism. And, you know, I believe, and I don't want to go into the soteriology part yet, but you know, with libertarian free will, it's just, to me, it's not one. I, you can't make an argument that I've seen from scripture. Of course they'll, they'll use every, you know, the free will offering. And that's not, that's not libertarian free will. The, the, yeah. offering, it, the offering doesn't have a will. It's, it's an adjective to describe the offering. It, it um, means just, it was voluntary, not required. It doesn't mean you have possess the freedom to do something internally. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is whenever, the other, if you ask someone, well, where's libertarian free will in the Bible? Of course, they'll be like, it's, all, it's every page. And they'll just throw verses at you like, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. And yep. there's a choice. And we command you to repent and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, they take an indicative statement yep. or an imperative statement and then apply all this like, oh, that means can and all, all this stuff. And they they you know, invoke their presuppositions into the whole thing. And, and they're assuming because things are said that you have this power all the time, just because you have a choice, but mm -hmm. we already know tons of people won't choose. So mm -hmm. kind of interesting. Yeah. The one I like to go to, and it's only really like the, the very radical Pelagians that'll, that'll say you can do this. But the one I like to go to is uh, what is the greatest commandment? And we're commanded to do this. You should love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, have you done that? No, obviously not. 
was that a was that a problem with your will? Could you not choose to, to do that perfectly? Like, it's uh, we're commanded to do something that's that's impossible for humans, unless you want to say we're we're capable of being sinless, and that's we're also we're also told to be perfect. Yep, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, so yeah, it's it's interesting. It's uh, people get really tied up on this, and I, I really think that whether it's uh, and I'll say this about a lot of the guys I know that are big in libertarian free will. I don't think they're sitting around like in some dark room with an evil plan to have free will and, you know, build their tower of Babel and all this stuff. Yeah. I think they're honestly, that's how they were trained, taught. It's in our culture. Everyone's taught free will, free will, this, free will, that. I think ultimately it comes down to like the humanistic man. I know they hate this when we say this, but the humanistic man centered view, um, in my study, and I might do a write-up on this, but it seems to me libertarian free will, the origin of it is Epicurus. This is the Epicureans a few hundred years before Christ, and he was a pagan hedonist, right? And so <laughs> that doesn't mean they're pagans. I'm just saying this stuff comes from places, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yes, yeah, I was listening to one of your debates, actually, and there was opposition to Edward's position, you know, that we only do that which we most greatly desire. And I don't see how there can be any opposition to that. I mean, the argument was that we don't always do that which we most greatly desire. And there was an example given, but the example didn't work. And I'll take an example as well. If my family has a gun held to their head and I'm or I get even worse yet, they tell me I have to hold a gun to my family's head. Somebody tells me because they have a gun to mine, I have to pull my trigger. Yeah, or pull that trigger. I am I gonna pull the trigger or am I gonna not pull the trigger? Well, you know, that is something that I have to weigh the pros and the cons of, and whatever is deeply ingrained in me is going to drive that. Either I pull the trigger and I save my life, or I have the trigger pulled on me because I refuse to do it. I go to work and you know, either one is a great decision. I don't want either of them, but it comes down to what is inside me. What am I made of? I don't want to go to work some mornings. You know, this more yesterday morning prime example. I'm like, I just don't want to, but I want that paycheck and I don't want to be fired. So the whole way to work, sleepy, just rub my eyes like a baby. You know, not what I wanted, but it is what, what my greatest desire was in that moment because of the alternative. So regardless whether we like something or not, likes and desires can't be combined. In that that's case. A, that's the cool, that's the secret phrase. And I'm glad you said it. I think one of the big confusions is people don't, evaluate this in the moment they'll say okay yeah i didn't want to go to work yesterday so i didn't want to go to work that was my biggest desire but i went to work anyway so therefore i did what i don't desire well not in that moment because just like you yeah. said the desire to stay employed get a check whatever it is yeah. is greater than the desire not to it doesn't mean the desires are the best things that make you feel best it's just that you have i mean we're free moral agents and I think that the key there is that you have to evaluate these these in the moment choices because we do a lot of stupid stuff in the moment that we look back and be like, that was dumb. I don't desire to do that. Yeah. But in the moment, that was our top desire. I, yeah. I, I don't see how people escape it either. And we've ever said something mean to their spouse, you know, sure. and then afterwards, like, oh, I didn't really mean that. I was just trying to hurt. In that moment, that was your greatest desire. Whether you really liked it, if, as soon as the words left your mouth, you're like, oh, snap, that was a bad move. It was your greatest desire. It was, was feeding from the inside of you. So yeah, that, that is it. Likes 
are not always synonymous with desires, but the desires will always be driven by your nature and what you are made of. And if our nature is fallen, not just hurt, but dead, if our nature is dead in sin, then our desires, and we're incapable by our very nature, understanding the things of the spirit of God, then if our nature can't understand God, our desires will never be for God. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 100% agree. All right, then. In that case, do we want to start moving on to the Order of Salutis? Uh, you know what? Kind of, let's tie in. I know Derek mentioned Soteriology 101. So there was something that we had come across. We're not going to pull it up and share on here. We'll just read it. So he was taking a passage that, you know, says his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And Leighton Flowers, the way his response to that was, God does not extend mercy to those arbitrarily picked before time began. He extends mercy to those who humbly revere his name. Humble yourselves, therefore, and you will be exalted. So there's a lot wrong with this in the order, in inability, not just incapacity, but inability. Yeah. So I think we should maybe pick some of this apart, and then maybe from there we can dive into the order of Salutis. Yeah, so my, my first reaction is um, God does not extend mercy to those arbitrarily picked. Well, A, w what do you mean when you say arbitrarily picked? Do you mean picked without reference to whether we had done good or bad? Because that's that's what Romans 9 says. Uh, Jake, uh, Jacob was chosen over Esau prior to the twins having done anything good or bad. So I, I don't necessarily like his his choice of it's, arbitrarily. It's arrogance because it takes mm -hmm. anything we don't understand must be meaningless mm -hmm. or arbitrary. And then secondly, back to what we were talking about previously, when he says he extends mercy to those who humbly revere his name, uh, he's taking it in indicative and implying that there's a cause there. The, the verse in question just says his mercy extends to those who fear him. It doesn't say the reason why his mercy extends to them it, it was caused by the fact that they feared them. It's just a description. And we, we, we affirm that, obviously. We do agree that God's mercy will um, extend to those who fear him. But ultimately, God is the cause of them fearing him. Yeah, it's like believe in Christ and you'll be saved. Mm -hmm. That doesn't magically mean all this other stuff. And here, here's what I don't get. So obviously with this verse, um, you know, I believe it's Mary. She was kind of singing a song. Yeah. She found out she was going to you know, be the mother of, of Jesus and all this stuff. So she's singing this song essentially of praise. And one is not on free will in any form of the imagination. But it, again, like you said, it's just the indicative. Now, here's the, here's the thing I have with these kind of statements. And I see these kind of statements all the time. That it's, it's a, therefore, he extends mercy to those who humbly revere his name. Now, humble yourselves, therefore, and you will be exalted. But they never answer this question, and it kind of kind of drives me nuts a little bit. But how, or better yet, why would anyone humble themselves? That's the question they never answer. Because, all right, humble yourself. Yeah, cool. But you can't humble yourself. And their solution to say, well, you can, because they, they'll come up with a form. And I know Leighton, uh, Provenient Grace, I'm not saying it's the Arminian version, but it's a grace before and you know, it illuminates everyone. And so they'll say, you know, this grace is given to everyone. So then you can humble yourself, but it doesn't, all it's doing is giving 
credence to libertarian free will in a way because it kind of sprinkles on the god stuff the grace the, the grace dust and then it's still okay so he gave grace to every single one you're sitting in a room two of you the guy next to you has the same exact grace you have at least sufficient enough how are you going to humble yourself because paul and christ and everywhere says you can't and what we say as Calvinists is that we have an effectual call. There, there's there's irresistible grace, effectual grace, and it, those who, you know, God's giving these gifts, and those who get these gifts are the ones who humble themselves. So, you know, those the why question is is one that often never seems to get answered. That's a solid point there. It's but that goes back to a denial that there's any inability. Uh, it really comes down to we are in the eyes of anything that disagrees, you know, with what we're putting out, it ultimately has to be, we are able to do all things, not just we have the capacity, but we have the ability to use the distinction that you mentioned that that's the only way around it. We have to be able, you know, to do all things in order to support such a viewpoint. Well, and they, and you've probably heard this before, and I don't agree with this either, but they'll bring in responsibility and they'll, they'll say to be responsible means they like to say able to respond. And I don't agree with that. I mean, it yeah. sounds cool. Mm -hmm. It's a derivative. Maybe the etymolo etymologically it sounds right. But that's not really what responsible is because if you're irresponsible, it doesn't mean you're unable not to, able respond. to respond. Like it doesn't yeah. make any sense. So that's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that. I think that it's kind of a cherry pick of a word to make it sound like because we believe in responsibility. Now, you Calvinists, you know, you're, I don't care, you're compatible. So, oh, that's still mm -hmm. determinism. And so how can anyone be responsible? And that, that, that's the argument, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, throw, the, the rocks that get thrown at us with that. But responsible is just telling us that there's things that will happen and for, for not choosing Christ. Now, whether or not you have the ability or not, it doesn't deflect from the simple admonition. I mean, we all believe we're free moral agents. It's like we are morally responsible. Oh, we don't have the ability to be perfect as God is perfect. You know, if any of us says that we do not sin, you know, we're straight up called liars. You know, we're going to sin, you know, but God has still called us to be perfect. His standard doesn't drop based on our inability. His standard is his standard. We meet his standard or we suffer the penalty, which is eternal death in hell. Mm -hmm. But thankfully, that isn't the case for those whom God has called out of that. The only thing that I can see the scriptures teaches as a prerequisite for being responsible is knowledge that something is sin. And as uh, descendants of Adam, with the, 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 um, the law written on our heart, in a sense, although it's, it's somewhat twisted, we have a, a knowledge of what is and isn't sin. Just because we don't have a desire to obey that doesn't then negate the fact that we're responsible. We know what is right and wrong. Uh, have, having a lack of a desire to actually obey that, it, it, it doesn't change anything. Look at our government laws. Secular society still knows the difference between right and wrong. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, they, get it, they get it confused because they are fallen beings, but mm -hmm. they still will try to promote something right. Why? Because they know that the theistic worldview is the only one that makes sense. So they have to draw from it. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Mm -hmm. So we've touched base on, you know, on the soteriological, 
can talk. So Teriology 101, I think, you know, we were talking earlier, Soteriology, we were going to kind of push that down. I think this might be a good spot for that because, again, we've discussed the will, we've discussed man's inability, we've discussed the nature. So going into how that all plays out in the practical sense of us and our standing before God and how any of us can possibly choose God. If we're not even capable, if we're arguing, you're incapable of choosing God. Well, clearly we do choose God. So there has to be something performed and a change in us in order to make that possible. And I think, let's go over the two basic camps. I know there's a lot of variations and things in between, but historically the two bare bones camps in there's the reformed and the non-reformed, again, by the variations, not all want to be called Arminian, not all want to be called synergists. So we'll just say reformed and non-reformed as a catch-all. You know, in the Reformed camp, you have in order election and predestination in Christ, followed by atonement, followed by a gospel call, followed by the inward call, then regeneration, and then conversion through faith and repentance, followed by justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, that order gets switched up in the non-Reformed camp, where it turns into there's an outward call, then there's faith, and then there is repentance, and then regeneration, followed by justification, perseverance, and glorification. So in the very first book that I ever wrote, I had a chapter called Three Simple Words, and it was based off grace, faith, and regeneration. And that's the typical order that the non-reform camp will use. Whereas, as we're about to dive into, the real order can only possibly be grace, regeneration, then faith. Yeah, and that's why we call them synergists, right? Because the the trigger, in their view, no matter how they slice it, it always comes down to that choice. It always comes down to what the person is doing. And I'll give them, okay, it's not works and all this stuff, but it could be considered that. But even if you know we want to give them that much, they still have to create this faith that's not a gift from God. And they have to equate faith in Christ as in the same faith when you step on an elevator and you have faith, the elevator's not going to fall. And I just totally disagree with that. And, of course, with our order, Salutis, the order of salvation, like you said, it's really how God, of course, you know, we're looking at this from a big picture, God's plan, the plan of redemption. He did all this stuff. He decrees it all. But if, I, if we ask the question, how does this play out in real time? How does this play out in our temporal world? We're looking around. We don't see the stuff happening behind the scenes, but how does it play out? And I think that's where this order, what they call it, the logical order comes in because it's to us, it's a logical order mm-hmm. so to God. You know, obviously he's eternal and all this stuff, but as we try to, in our human way, understand it, it's just how mm-hmm. God works with us in time. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously we know there's going to be overlap in some exactly. ways. These are not God is saying, check in the box next, check in the box. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's clearly overlap and that working yeah. there. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's helpful as we work through our faith and understanding to have a step-by-step that we can understand in that logical order. And yeah, the overlap is expected, but when yeah. you take the order that is logical and completely reverse it, the implication is naturally an illogical God. 
Yeah. For, for things that are conflated, for example, um, regeneration and, and faith, um, I would say that I guess I could see somehow that that might happen separately, maybe, but I would say at least normative, if not always, regeneration and faith are occurring at the same time. It's just a matter of we have to break this out logically. Logically, regeneration perceives faith, not necessarily temporally. And the argument with that one that I've heard most common, they'll say, well, how can you be regenerated and have the spirit, you know, if you don't have faith? And where the flip side would be, well, how can you have faith and have the spirit if you're still a rotten fallen creature who hasn't been regenerated agreed yeah that it's like it's like what comes first the fire or the heat i mean it kind of works it's kind of happening together right i mean yeah you know and i'm sure there's some scientists listening to this like oh my goodness <laughs> but i mean it, from a from an average guy like me like fire i mean i don't know you think the fire starts but then there's the heat also it's just a byproduct of the spark and the, you know, all this stuff. So it's all happening. Yeah. Like, like you said, um, and, and we're also limited by our perception, right? So we have, we're going by this in what we believe the Bible teaches, um, you know, and we believe the Bible teaches that, that it starts with God and it's the election and, and it goes from there. And the other thing is the gift, like, you know, if, if faith is truly a gift and I believe it's faith, salvation and grace are the gift but if that's truly a gift i mean it's just with calvinism the whole system goes together it's like if well if you haven't elect people and if you do that you know if god chose things and how would it carry out his decrees and his purposes and it's just that's what we're seeing here with this yeah that's that's more or less the biggest thing right there <laughs> like he's a puzzle piece or puzzle the, the biggest thing or but in my image in my head was you got a completed puzzle missing like three pieces in the synergist view. So they just kind of take cardboard, cut it out and paint it however they want to plug it in. <laughs> plug it in. Yeah, this works. Yeah. Very true. So do you have any more to say on nah, that? Okay, we can move on. So shifting into something else again, this is a, uh, as we we're putting together an outline, it kind of came from again, one of the debates that you were having in there and the idea of primary and secondary causes, as well as a passive will versus an active will, or is does one of those not exist at all? And I'll just go ahead and say my position up front. I used to say, oh, well, God actively wills some things, and he just passively allows other stuff to happen. And then all of a sudden, one day, I was like, oh, snap, what a buffoon I've been. You know, it can't possibly be that God is just passively allowing because then going back to Ephesians 1.11, he's not over all things and making all things happen there. So, but that argument is they do try to use it. That there is a passive will of God that, well, the desires of his creatures and he just kind of lets it happen. But if that's the case, something hasn't happened from eternity past. Something is playing out and the further implication is it goes against the doctrine of divine simplicity, because if it's still playing out, because God is just passively allowing something, well, now he has to learn what that thing is. And if somebody wants to say, well, no, he knew from eternity past, well, okay, then if he knew, it's only ever going to play out that way, which means he's not passively allowing it. It has to happen from internal decree from the past. So it, it doesn't work. To try to say there's a passive will I am convinced it leads to nothing more than a form of open theism. 
You know, so feel free if you guys disagree at all on that one, but that's the position I've come to. Yeah, I would say, um, no, I, I hear you because obviously there's a will of decree, right? So if, if we come from a place that God decrees all things and all this, there's the will of decree. So the only way I could see someone arguing like a passive will would be only if it's a subset, it's part of, it's a subset of how we see it played out meaning at times there's verses in scripture and this is a lot of open theists use the verses where God repents and God changes his mind. And God says, if you do, I'm going to destroy you. And then, you know, they repent. And then he's like, okay, I decided not to destroy you. That kind of stuff. That could be a, in a sense, a passive will that was already decreed by his will to be passive in the sense of how he's interacting with man. Now, but like you said, it doesn't mean there's like these two dual wheel uh, wills, you know, interacting yeah. each other. And I, I don't agree with that. You can't now, be active and passive at the same time. Yeah. That's contradictory. And when you get into, uh, so when you get into causes, you have the primary, secondary causes, things like that. You know, God, God uses secondary causes. So I would say man would be a secondary cause in this regard. So if God's the primary cause in that he... You know, he does all everything he wants. And if he for his greater glory, the, the he decrees everything, which we don't have the full picture. We don't know what's going to happen even in our lives. Never mind a thousand years from now or whenever, you know, however long it's going to be. We believe that or I believe that God has a plan for everything, but he uses secondary causes to carry out a lot of things. And that, that includes the scary stuff. It includes evil. It includes, you know, sin and all this, but not never ever means that God is the one sinning or mm-hmm. God is the one doing evil. And this is a touchy subject because, you know, you, you want to, you're talking about God, right? So you want to make sure like, how is our biblical view here being said but then there's a lot of stuff in life that come up and people ask questions and they always go to those emotional questions, right? The, the most evil thing in the world. And, you know, God decreed the most evil thing, his son. And so how, how yes. does that work? But God didn't crucify him. The Romans, the Gentiles, the, mm-hmm. the, the Pharisees crucified him. Those are the secondary causes. So another way to look at it is um, God is like approximate, a, a proximate cause as we're the efficient cause of any sin, right? So we're always responsible, but just because, you know, God's always getting what he wants and desires. And the only answer I think, and and it it is a mystery, I mean, to a degree, and I think every theologian says that, and every every belief system always appeals to mystery somewhere. We don't know everything. Not everything's revealed to us, and the Bible even says that. But um, the kind of lost my train of thought there, but the, the, the difference between the, the proximate and the efficient cause, um, there is some mystery there. However, you know, we don't have to know every little piece of that other than God has, oh, this is what I was going to say is every, we know that everything ultimately is for the, the good of God. Yeah. And if you're looking at the whole story, we're, we're a, a dot, a blip on the radar, and bad stuff happens and there's a fallen world and all this stuff. But ultimately everything's going to be for God's glory and for a greater good. And we probably don't know half a percent of half a percent of what's going on. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think you mentioned Christ, you know, and the, the primary cause being God, the secondary cause being the men working in there. 
I'm sure you've heard some try to argue, again, going back to free will, you choose, you chose that. But if you were to play it all over again, you'd choose the other one. I know you mentioned that the idea that you could, I've heard some argue that God knows all potential outcomes and that he knows one world and and timeline where that happens and one timeline where that could have happened, which Molinism. Yeah. It's, it's, that's way out there. I won't get too far into that, but to kind of raise a question with that, is there also a world out there where the plan of God failed and Christ was not crucified because the Romans decided not to do what they were going to do? Has to be. And there has to be, which means in that kind of system of thought, there has to be a world where Christ came and died an old man because he was never crucified. There was no sacrifice, no substitutionary atonement, no resurrection. There has to be a world where God utterly failed by the will of man, choosing something outside of that which he had eternally decreed. And if anybody wants to say, no, no, that could never happen, A, there's an inconsistent worldview going on, and B, it means there's an admission that everybody involved in that act of the crucifixion of Christ was not just there. God looked ahead through the corridors of time, saw what they were going to do. It says, that spot right there, that's where Christ fits in. That's where I'll send my son. You know, it's that everybody there is working in accordance with their nature and carrying out through secondary causes, secondary means what their nature is going to do. But all of that has been decreed by the primary cause, God. Christ didn't come in into an opening that man would allow in order to fulfill his plan. But God had Christ in mind, his son in mind, and he set up everything where man would ensure that it happened. But every last one there willfully chose what it was they were doing. 100%. And I've run into people that say, these are Christians, right? I've run into people that say, well, Pilate could have released him if he wanted to, or... You know, the same with Paul on the road to Damascus or Saul on the road to Damascus. You know, they say, well, you know, Paul answered and, you know, but he could have he could have said no to Christ. And I'm like, no, he couldn't have. I mean, there's not there's not one possible event in ever that he could have or would have, I should yeah. say, say no. And, you know, especially the only logic. Well, I'll say logical doesn't mean it's correct, but the only logical position I can see as an argument for any of this stuff is open theism yeah because even the foreknowledge people whether it's corridors of time or whether it's uh you know the eternal now or whatever it is you want to call it or even molinism the the foreknowledge people specifically everything's 100 and you don't have to we don't have to argue cause at this point it's just everything's 100 percent certain So there's still no difference that would have happened because the fixity of all those events have already happened and with molinism all the possible worlds is to me, it's still determinism. I mean, how is it not determinism if God's choosing all the worlds of all these possibilities? So I don't know. Uh, yeah. That goes to what I said earlier with divine simplicity, you know, that if it's not, even if you say he didn't determine it and he just knew ahead, I had, I would argue that foreknowledge is that intimate sense and not just simply a head knowledge of something. And if we are going to take the head knowledge, it's because he decreed it. So of course he knew it. I knew I was going to be here because I determined I'd be here, you know, now in the sense of, oh, where was I going to say with your, that? your divine simplicity, Yeah, the divine simplicity. Sorry. I'm all, all over there. <laughs> if there's something that could have changed, God doesn't know. 
And we know nothing gets added to God. There's nothing God doesn't know. There's no changing in God. So let alone that changing of the mind, you know, I would, I would agree with both of you that that's our perspective of things, but it's not God actually changing mm-hmm. because that necessitates a change in God and God does not right. change yeah. any kind of learning. If God had to look forward and see what we would do, that means at some time or not time that God didn't know something and required looking to learn something exactly and if he learns something now something has been added to god that was not there before and we simply cannot have that god is and there is nothing more being added to or changed within the is that is god and in calvinism you know i always say this but god isn't mopping up spilt milk in aisle three constantly in calvinism Mm -hmm. he's not responding to Mm -hmm. oh my goodness look what man did now you know we got you know, send in the uh, special response team. We got to, we got to, we got to fix this. I mean, it comes down to almost as, as absurd as that example, when everything is contingent on this man doing things. And it's just, it doesn't, the, the more I debate people, it's like, I, I see, I'm just more solid in my position mm-hmm. in that, you know, you might not like Calvinism because, you know, there's some scary stuff and, and we answer a lot of stuff directly. And, you know, we, we definitely believe in the supreme um, sovereignty of God. People might not like that, but I don't see how it's, I believe it's a hundred percent rational from a philosophical level. And then of course, scripture, I mean, I'm a compatibilist because I believe scripture teaches Amen. Both, both sides that there's God determines and in control over everything, Ephesians 1:11, and we have freedom not libertarian free will. I don't think that exists, but we have freedom in that we do what we want. And there's a, that those are both compatible and it's scriptural. I don't think moral agency is absolutely biblical. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'll, I'll add to this discussion is um, Romans eight, right? We're told that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Under a system where you have God running around to clean up things, how can that possibly tr- be true? And how can the Christian have any comfort in that? Mm-hmm. Because there's there's so much un, uncaused or un, undetermined evil uh, that wasn't determined by God. How is he able to then just cause all those things to work for good? Man is uh, free. But if you understand from a Calvinistic perspective that even the evil though it might be caused by secondary means, God has decreed it and it is for your good because he is in ultimate control of anything. You can, you can rest in that promise. No, everything that happens, whether good or evil is for my good. The Christian can take great solace in that. Yeah, it's very good. So I think there's a quote that John Calvin has from bondage and liberation of the will that I think really just, sums up this entire episode here quite nicely. I just want to read that real quick. So he stated, we allow that man has choice and that it is self-determined so that if he does anything evil, it should be imputed to him and to his own voluntary choosing. We do away with coercion and force because this contradicts the nature of the will and cannot coexist with it. We deny that choice is free because through man's innate wickedness, it is of necessity driven to what is evil and cannot seek anything but evil. 
And from this, it is possible to deduce what a great difference there is between necessity and coercion. For we do not say that man is dragged unwillingly into sinning, but that because his will is corrupt, he is held captive under the yoke of sin, and therefore of necessity will in an evil way. For where there is bondage, there is necessity. But it makes a great difference whether the bondage is voluntary or, co or coerce. We locate the necessity to sin precisely in corruption of the will from which follows that it, that it is self-determined. Hmm. All right. Uh, with that, uh, does anybody have anything else before we close? It's right. one of those topics where we could go on and on. I think yeah, there's so many absolutely. different elements to it. Yeah. Well, that's just an excuse to bring you back sometime. <laughs> yeah. <there we laughs> yes. go. All right. Uh, before we leave, I do want to uh, give thanks to uh, Derek and Travis for participating. And I do want to give out uh, a shout out to uh, Derek's uh, group, Irres Irresistible Truth Discussion. Uh, I've been in there for a little bit, and I can say that most of the discussions, despite a wide variety of viewpoints, are very respectful. And even if you're not of our persuasion, um, feel free to uh, join in. The, the discussion there is good. Um, so uh, with that, uh, we will see you all later.